Stay hungry, stay foolish. As always, thank you to our friends over at Zai. Zai is a global fintech that's building integrated financial services for digital native and non native businesses by supporting them, you're supporting us check them out at hellozai.com. Your margin is my opportunity. Jeff Bezos. Amazon is the most extraordinary and important business story of our time. Facebook has more members and is our social network. Google sits right at the heart of the information tsunami. Apple as by far the prettiest toys. But starting 25 years ago, as a tiny online bookstore, Amazon now stands astride the e powered river of goods that flows through many economies. It is a retailer, a marketplace, an electronic infrastructure, a publisher, an advertising channel, and a distributor. It is increasingly the arbiter of retail, the pace setter for employment, and a private taxing authority taking its bite out of every transaction on its marketplace. And Amazon is only getting started. Across all its business, Amazon is automating rapidly and leveraging the power of enormous and growing capabilities in artificial intelligence and machine learning. The sheer range and pace of change is formidable. It is an extraordinary story, and it raises many questions. Where did Amazon come from? How did it grow so big and so fast? What can we learn from the history? Can we distill key lessons about objectives, strategy, tactics, and especially corporate culture? Where is Amazon going next? What should we, the collective we, do about it? Where will Amazon be in 10 years from now? Is Amazon a threat? Should we simply applaud? Are there characteristics to worry about? And if so, what should we do? Our guest today addresses all these questions in his book. He is the author of Behemoth, Amazon Rising, Power and Seduction in the Age of Amazon. Robin Gaster, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And before we start, I have great news for audience. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in with a chance to win one of these two copies that are behind me on the bookshelf. I'll put you in the hat. We pull out a winner randomly every week, and hopefully that is you just in time for Christmas and the new year. Let's get into it. I'd love to start, Robin, with an analogy you introduce in the book. You say, evolution has selected for humans who are good at reading other people. So then you ask us to read what type of human would Amazon look like if it was a human? What characteristics would Amazon have? And then you give us a hint. You say, if Amazon were a human, it would be brilliant, flexible, cold, efficient, immoral, agile, obsessive, secretive, transactional, innovative, ungenerous, inspirational, ruthless, greedy, effective, cheap, visionary, disruptive, super confident. It would have no friends and no partners. It would echo Nietzsche's Ubermensch, a more perfect human altogether, shorn of the emotional layers that connect us and also limit us. Amazon cares only about itself. And of course, its customers. That's a way to tee you up to explain what you meant by this as an intro to your book. When you talk about a human being, you often talk about turning points, right? 
in their lives when they when they took one fork and not another fork and it made and it transformed what they became and i think it's possible to think about amazon like that too that there are some key moments in the history of amazon that were transformative and were often innovative and risky in in really important ways so okay so they start a bookstore in in 1995 and it they are the first they're a first mover they have an advantage and they actually retain this advantage for for many years of being the first mover really making an online bookstore work and they did a bunch of things that really helped them to get the business going um you know they they built a good catalog they figured out that you had to have good customer service they figured a bunch of things out and they had they had a universal catalog so uh that already was a huge step beyond going to barnes and noble um so how did they get from there to 400 billion dollars right they were tiny they you know i don't think barnes and noble cared anything about this so think about the sort of key, some of the key turning points a couple of them came right around 2000 2001 2002 and i think they're both central so the first one is um the decision that they are not just going to be a retailer and they're not i mean we'll come back to this in a minute that they are that they always wanted to be seen as a technology company but they were not just going to be a retailer in this in in one key sense that they opened the doors their doors their platform to their competition they created the amazon marketplace and th- this was an astounding thing to do i mean there are marketplaces all over the world there are souks and there are you know there's village marketplaces and and they all look pretty much the same there's a bunch of merchants and they have their place and maybe they pay some rent but that's it there's no re- real relationships between them or to the bigger vendor really the bigger vendor i mean the the owner of the marketplace amazon's comp- amazon's marketplace is completely different it would be as though uh, macy's said to bloomingdales hey you can come into our store set up a, a storefront right within where we are and we'll compete with you and we're happy and we'll take 15% thank you that's it nobody does that nobody had, had ever really done that and you can imagine that that was seen as a tremendous threat inside amazon by the people who were running the retail side you're just inviting everybody in the world to come and set up shop in your store and you have to compete with them so that's the that that's the first decision they made and now today more than 60% of amazon's retail is marketplace their own retail is declining for reasons we can talk about later and will likely continue to decline quite sharply actually um so that's item 1 they so they so what what did that do it got them to scale you know when bezos started he wanted to be the everything store he wanted to yeah, there was some crazy idea at one point that he was going to have two copies of everything in his store this was insane it was it was and it was dumped but they are the everything store because of the marketplace 
They have more than 2 million sellers on the marketplace. And if you want a left-handed wrench that is exactly 9 16th of an inch, there are probably 30 people who will sell it to you right there. And not only that, you can find people to tell you about it. We'll come back to that in, in a moment. So item number one is, is that decision. The second point is actually about reviews. Traditionally, bookstores, which is where, where, where he started, books had a, um, uh, a, a structure, right? They, and, it, and it was all, in a sense, working backwards from the bookstore. You go to a bookstore, a big bookstore, a really big bookstore might have 20,000 um, volumes, 20,000 titles in it. And everything in the publishing industry was designed to get the right 20,000. So working backwards, there were publishers, and they only published a certain number of books every year. Working backwards from that, there were agents. Agents made sure that all the crap didn't reach the publishers. And working backwards from that was the poor author who was desperately trying to find an agent so he could talk to a publisher who might possibly be able to get him into a bookstore and then get the book reviewed by the New York Times or the Washington Post or whoever else you know there, there was. Well, that's the old model. Amazon turned it upside down. By building a self-publishing platform, Amazon has, and, and by creating a universal instant distribution system, Amazon blew apart all of the gates that those gatekeepers were presenting. Now, you don't need to get into the bookstore. Amazon sells more than half the books sold in America. You don't need to be in a bookstore at all. In fact, you could argue that spending your time and energy trying to get into a bookstore is a waste of time. So, Instead of those gatekeepers, Amazon created new gatekeepers. The real gatekeeper is the review, right? And there's a lot of issues to do with fake reviews on Amazons and all that. But the reality is Amazon got started first. They stuffed customer reviews down the throat of the publishers. Publishers hated it. They didn't want to have negative reviews. They didn't want to allow that possibility that their, their um, books would be would be down, <laughs> downvoted, but Amazon insisted. So Amazon has all the reviews. You know, you can go to Walmart and for, for the same product, you get a handful of reviews on Walmart, and you get hundreds or thousands. And this matters because, because you know, there's a <laughs> there's pretty strong variability in reviews between good reviews and crap reviews. We know that, right? But We've all become quite good at sorting through them and looking for them, and we can see the genuine ones. It's not that hard. We can see what works. So Amazon owns this incredible validating tool, the review, and, and really it's they have it. Nobody else really has it. So that's item two. That wasn't really a strategic decision. It kind of emerged, but there, there are two, but two more things they did were transformative. First one starts in about uh, 2000. So imagine that you are the owner of Amazon. You are Jeff Bezos. And in 2000, you have your stores going gangbusters. They are, they are at, at certain points, they're growing 30% a month in sales. 
And you have a couple of warehouses, finally, after working hard to improve, you got a couple of warehouses and you're getting swamped. All right, so, so what does you know, standard business strategy say at this point? I think, I think the answer is clear. It says, okay, outsource. This isn't your core business. This is logistics. This is getting stuff from A to B. Uh, give it to UPS and, and be happy. Well, Amazon didn't do that. Amazon's, and I think this is the perhaps the single most brilliant decision that Amazon made because it went so much against standard business management at the time. I mean, it, it was a no-brainer to give, to give this to UPS. It was absolute no-brainer. Amazon had no real, real expertise. They, you know, it was, it was an insane idea that they could build a logistic system that could be better than UPS. And they spent 10 years, for 10 years, they spent all their money on it, almost all their money. You know, remember that period where Amazon couldn't make a profit and Amazon couldn't make a profit and Wall Street just laughed at them? They were spending it all on warehouses. And now they have a warehouse system that is better than UPS for the del delivery of packages. You know, they have a, they're, they're now, they've gone from delivering about 20% of their packages to 65% of their packages. They're, they're a bigger package delivery system now than, than FedEx. And they will overtake UPS in a couple of years. That was a remarkable thing to do. And it gave them... So now we look backwards, right? And what you, what you get is if they had outsourced, they would have been at the mercy of UPS and they would have no competitive advantage over anyone else doing deliver, you know, selling on the internet. Now they sell, they can control their delivery. It's faster, it's cheaper, it's more tuned to e-commerce because after all, UPS is a, a, a general delivery service. And they only deliver where they want to. The places they don't want to deliver, they use the post office or UPS. So it's an extraordinary competitive advantage. And they're not done. They've announced they're going to do, put another 1,500 hubs around the U.S. to get so that they can move beyond one-day delivery into two-hour delivery. So that's, that's the, that's the you know, third piece of the puzzle and the final piece is an interesting piece again it's sort of similar right and that is amazon web services so amazon started in the you know with with outsourcing that too i mean it was a natural thing to do go find some tech folk at a company somewhere and have them build you stuff and then they started building inside and then they really needed to build inside because their existing systems weren't good so effectively, they, they were the first mover in cloud computing. Here's another thing that they did, a classic Amazon thing, which they are going to replicate again and again. They built something for themselves, and then they sold it to everybody else. And they didn't care if it went to their competitors. They were still prepared to compete. So you can see all of these turning points reflected a calculated decision to risk, an appetite for big investment and for uh, really transformative um, change inside the organization and for accepting the pain that that would involve internally, 
you know, so those things are all, those are the story of how Amazon got to be this big because they all work together. If you have great, a great catalog, you can get customers. If the customers will give you great reviews and a lot of reviews, that brings in more customers. That brings in more merchants because you have the marketplace as a place to park them. So the merchants come in. Now there is more, there's a bigger catalog. At the same time, you're building a logistics system that is second to none. And so now you can deliver in ways that your competitors can't. And in fact, you can use that delivery to train those customers so they expect two-day delivery. And Amazon now wants them to expect one-day delivery in the full knowledge that only Amazon can do that. I'm going to tee you up with a quote here from Jeff Bezos that emphasizes what you were talking about there, because one of the key parts of Amazon's strategy is the super glue. This is prime time. And Bezos said, I want to draw a moat around our best customers. We're not going to take our best customers for granted. And here you say, Amazon Prime is the first of five key tent poles supporting Amazon's dominance. So just to put it into context for our audience, Amazon Prime is only 15 years old. And you ask the question, so why did US households change their habits so quickly? Four reasons, delivery, entertainment, deals, and trust. The turning point for Prime, in a sense, I think, was partly delivery. I mean, delivery is really the key. In order to get two-day delivery, you had to be a Prime member. And so, you know, a lot of people sign up. It's a great deal, right? At the time, it was 79 bucks or 99 bucks, and you got free shipping, uh, free two-day shipping. And, you know, you try shipping something two-day with UPS or the post office. You know what that's like. Uh, so that was a that was a great deal, and a lot of people signed up just for that. And then uh, two thousand ten ish, Amazon started seriously adding entertainment, and that I mean that's a hilarious concept, really. I mean, imagine Macy's trying to do that, right? It's just you know they would bring singers, singers and dancers into the show, and you know try and sell you underwear at the same time. I mean, Victoria's Secret has had some success with that model, but it, it's limited to underwear. I mean, um, so what's interesting is that Amazon sits at an intersection where nobody else sits, right? So it's a very competitive uh, entertainer. Amazon Video is pretty successful. You know, Netflix is bigger or probably bigger, and Disney is is growing rapidly and whatever, but Amazon is the only place where you don't have to make any money in video, right? So for them, they don't care. They want to bring in customers to their retail business. And similarly, if you're Walmart, you look at this and you scratch your head and say, well, what can we do? And answer, there is none. I mean, there, there just isn't. So uh, for the retailers, this entertainment is a problem because they can't compete. And for the entertainment folk, it's a problem because it doesn't cost anything. So it puts a floor under all their pricing and, and exerts pressure on them. I, I don't think Amazon is particularly interested in building a standalone entertainment system. But Prime is extraordinary. There, there are, according to the latest numbers, which I don't really believe, there are now more Amazon Prime members in the US than there are Amazon than there are households. 
That's it's astounding. How is that possible? I, actually, I don't think it is possible. I think the numbers are probably not right. But, but you know, the, the, the point is you can walk into a crowded room in many areas, not just among the wealthy, and say, well, okay, who here has a Prime, Amazon Prime member? And someone in their household will. I was thinking about this, Robin, recently. So I'm a member of Business Prime as well, and I've been a primetime member for a long time. I've also been an early adopter to buying on the internet. I have an extensive record collection. I'm a music collector. And I used to use an early version of Amazon. I think Amazon might have bought them called Cayman, a European site. And one of the problems back then, it was a bit the Wild West. You got your product sometimes and other times you didn't complain because you were kind of just grateful to have your product coming through in the first place. And that fact that you weren't ripped off or somebody didn't scam your credit card in some way. And that's all changed. And that is the trust that you're talking about. But there's another factor at play. For example, if I'm a prime member, and I notice that I get extra discounts by being a prime member, it stops me actually bothering to go and try and get the best price. Because if I trust Amazon already, and I trust they're giving me the best price, sometimes I know they'll get it wrong. Sometimes I know I might pay a tiny bit above the odds, but I'm kind of going, in general, I'm winning here. In general, things are going my way. So I'll keep it that way. And I don't bother going looking elsewhere. And if I'm one of the other platforms like Google, for example, I don't bother going through the whole rigmarole of trying to find the best site, the best price, going on a comparison site, etc. I just stick on Amazon. And as you say, many of the searches now begin and end on Amazon. And that's a huge threat to the other players and a huge advantage for Amazon. So the, the share that have start that start on Amazon is growing rapidly. And and for obvious reasons, if, you know, I, I don't believe that Amazon has the best price. M mostly, perhaps even not. I haven't done enough comparison shopping. But as an Amazon customer, I don't care. The price difference isn't worth the hassle. And it's not worth the trust problem that you're going to encounter. I mean, I've done... You know, I've done transactions with Walmart. It's fine. Doing transactions with some random seller somewhere else, not so fine, right? I'd rather have Amazon as the intermediary. It could be the same seller, but Amazon will enforce my customer rights, and I don't have to deal with it. So, so for trust reasons, it's probably close to the right price. It might be a little higher, but it maybe not. After all, there are a lot of competitors on the Amazon pro platform. Uh, there's trust and there's delivery. So, you know, this is what's happening, though, what's interesting is that this is also the basis for a shift in advertising revenues, right? It, the advertisers have figured out now that Amazon is doing a lot of advertising, has a lot of advertising inventory to sell, advertisers has figured out why should we spend money on Google when here we can sell it, we can spend money exactly when the customer is trying to buy the thing that we are trying to sell. It's a perfect match, right? I mean, if I was selling a product, I'd put, I'd put my advertising money in Amazon. It makes perfect sense. They don't even charge you for views. They charge you for click-throughs. So you're already looking at customers who are interested in, in, your, in your product before you even spend a dime. 
And like the others, it's an auction-based system. So I don't, you know, I as an aside, I think Amazon is desperate for profits for reasons that we can talk about. Advertising is extremely high margin, 80% plus margin. So they've gone gangbusters on that. And if you open an Amazon search page now, it's mostly ads. First, first page is mostly ads. And Amazon is taking a big risk. Uh, customers can see that. They understand that they're being shilled. And uh, the trust factor is declining. So you, you would have to ask yourself why Amazon is doing that. Um, why are they taking such a big risk? And I think it's in their, you know, it's in their financials. It's yeah. a hidden set of problems. Let's come back to that because that is a very important point. But it reminded me of something else. But this is where other players are trying to compete with Amazon, and Amazon is not interested in competing with them. There's a Bezos quote here that absolutely nails it when he said. I'm pretty sure we're the only company or the first company to have figured out how to make a winning golden globe pay off in increased sales of power tools and baby wipes. They have attribution coming from something that's very hard to attribute value to coming back to retail. And this is a massive change in the ecosystem for other competing entities. Absolutely right. And Prime is brilliant. I mean, and it's sort of hermetically sealed, right? I mean, there's no way, not only is there no way in, there's there, there's no likelihood in the US that there will be a competitor to Prime. I mean, well, who would do it? Who who could be successful? I don't think Walmart can do it. And they're the only ones who are big enough. I, I just can't see it. I can't, they haven't tried really. They, I mean, they're barely trying to compete in delivery. So um, I, I don't. I think Prime is going to stand alone, and it is, as you as you mentioned, it's the glue. Once you sign up for Prime, you're committed. You know, you're not going to pay 120 bucks up front and then go somewhere else where you don't get any benefit for it. That doesn't make any sense, you know. And brilliantly, the more you buy, the better the deal is for you. It's a fixed price. You get as many deliveries as you want. Well. And you should have more deliveries. That just keeps you on the platform. But I wanted to move more to the platform, to the marketplace in particular, because there's a quote that you talk about here about Amazon as a platform. You say, many sellers come to Amazon looking for a new distribution channel for their retail business or a way to jumpstart their company. But they find that Amazon has become their advertising firm and their storefront, their warehouse and their shipper. For some, it's their bank and their intermediary that collects their sales taxes. It makes the rules and enforces them. And what's interesting here is you find an analogy between this and something that's close to our Irish history, which is in sharecropping. Well, it, I mean, didn't it sound like sharecropping to you? It, it, you know, it, you, you come and work on the Amazon plantation and, you know, they squeeze you in lots of different ways. And you have to compete with other sharecroppers all the time because otherwise they'll, you know, you, you, you won't eat. Um, uh, and you don't own, you really don't own your own store. You're renting space from Amazon for your, for your good. 
And I, th I think actually this is, um, th there's something else sort of related to this. I, th I do think it's sharecropping. And I think that we should think about it like that when we want to consider whether it's a good thing. Um, I'm, I, I've made this point in a number of places and it seems to get be getting zero traction. So uh, I'm just going to make it again, but being the stubborn person that I am. Um, People talk constantly about brands on Amazon. It's like, you know, these sharecroppers are trying to build something that differentiates them from all other sharecroppers and is permanent and is theirs, right? But Amazon, Amazon is the anti-brand. Amazon is like, you know, um, I'm looking for a good analogy here. It, you know, it's, <laughs> it's bleach on a growing plant. If you think you can build a brand on Amazon, you're fooling yourself um, because Amazon runs on search and search is the opposite of brand. What are brands? Brands are designed to connect you emotionally to a particular product so that you will have a tendency either to buy it without, you know, you'll be favorably inclined towards it, or maybe you'll even pay a premium for it. Right? You might pay more. So the idea is to establish some connection before the customer goes to buy something. But search is about the moment. Search is about what we do right here in front of the computer. Right now, I'm going to search for underwear. I ain't going to search for Hanes. I'm just going to search for underwear and whatever pops up. And Amazon Basics will likely pop up first. Uh, so the idea that you can build Brands are based on repeated customers, right? You have to keep buying from the same brand to develop this relationship. Amazon fundamentally disrupts that. So, you know, as, you, as a sharecropper, share your options are quite limited. You can build a good product. I mean, you can do product sales. And you, I don't think you will ever have a brand. There, there are a few modest exceptions, most of whom build their brand elsewhere, and then bring it to Amazon for sales. Amazon is, after all, where all the customers are. So you have to do the work of building your brand somewhere else. And then you come to Amazon and you sell, and that's fine. And people may search for your brand. That's good. Um, so from the, from the sharecropper's perspective and the individual seller's perspective, this is sort of a Darwinian world and it's policed by Amazon, and they try and police it, but they don't spend enough. They don't work hard enough. In the end, I think their view is there's always another seller. There's always another sharecropper. There's an endless supply of people who want to sell on the Amazon platform. And, and in the end, even if 10% of them drop out, it doesn't really matter, provided that you're still making the sales. You don't really need to have millions of disappointed sellers you can do with hundreds of thousands of disappointed sellers if you have to i just want to make it clear robin that you and i are fans of amazon we're fans of the innovation in the organization we're fans of certain work practices but we're also call out like any new technologies that's introduced into the world that are any new business model there's pros and cons and one of those cons if you call it that is when the organization is run so efficiently 
and there's so many metrics in place, white collar executives are going to make decisions based on the way they're measured, because measurement and metrics encourage certain behaviors and de discourage other behaviors. And one of those was the decisions, the business decisions that certain people make. And someone like Jeff Bezos hasn't got oversight of the entire organization. Neither does Andy Jassy now in his role as CEO of Amazon, they can't see what's going on in every sector within the organization. And we saw this with one of the case studies, one of the cases that you talk about in the book, which is the case of super duper hoops. Jason has told this story in other places and in his own book. Um, you know, he, he came to Amazon very early and he started um, and, and he built a business uh, selling different kinds of sort of, um, uh, you know, basketball hoops and air tables and things like that for, for home use. And he, he figured out that the key buyers for these things were not the dads and were not the kids, they were the moms. And so he marketed to moms very successfully. And he built a pretty good business. And then he suddenly found that Amazon had built a knockoff business and was competing with him. Um, he had already found some of the difficulties of Amazon's approach. So when you build a, when you, when you sell something on Amazon, you build the page that uh, that sells the product, right? So you have to put pictures and videos and testimonials and all that stuff that makes it an attractive page for somebody to say, okay, this product looks pretty good. Uh, I'm going to buy it. But <laughs> as he pointed out, all other sellers of that product kind of free ride on your page because they're there lurking, waiting with a lower price or with some benefit and they don't really have to do that. They can just look. Um, so he found that difficult. So he started, um, he tried to differentiate. He tried to find ways to build something that was unique. So first of all, he went to Spalding and had them make a unique product for a set of products for him. And then one day he got a call saying that Amazon was demanding that Spalding sell them direct to sell similar products direct. Um, and Spalding caved uh, on Jason's Jason in Jason's story. So he moved on and he built a new, even more um, insulated product where uh, he built a product from the ground up. He went to, you know, and his story was one in which Amazon basically chased him around the internet and chased his products and built knockoff after knockoff until he gave up. And they left the business. They, they, they did pretty well for a while, and then they just gave up. And the interesting story here is, you know, this is air hockey tables, right? You, and the worrying thing is, um, on the one hand, Amazon says that only one less than 1% of their goods sold on their platform are their own white label brands. So it's negligible, uh, which, of course, is an indictment of Amazon's own business because they should be doing a lot better. I mean, that's kind of pathetic, really. Uh, but be that as may, uh, on the other hand, this is a tiny business. I mean, it's, you know, how many air hockey tables can you sell? And, and yet, 
they were prepared to expend the energy to steal that business. And you think, well, wow, what are they doing elsewhere? In the, I mean, you know, they're, they're pri- of their private label brands, batteries are by far the most important. They got into that quite early. They, managed, they figured out that the big brands had pretty substantial overhead built in and that they could white label the heck out of them. And they, so Amazon came in with prices that were 30% lower. It quickly took 30% of the market, and that's where they are now, of the online market. Um, so, uh, you know, the story here is there's a, there's a huge conflict of interest between being on the platform, owning the platform, and having a white label business on the platform. They're three different things. Right, because the white label, um, you're using information, deep information from your sellers, potentially. Um, Amazon denies that it does this. However, only last week there was a report uh, from India showing that that's exactly what they were doing. Uh, You know, uh, Elizabeth Warren has been after this for a couple of years. It's hard to tell if this is really in aggregate, important. As I said, Amazon has denied that it's significant. I mean, that they do very much white label. And it's possible that the new uh, rules will actually uh, affect its competitors more. You know, Walmart, uh, I think 35% of their groceries are white label. You know, Costco has tons of white label. So the question would be, well, how are they... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe they'll get caught up in the dragnet. If I was uh, if I was a, a true conspiracy theorist, I would suspect that Amazon had set this trap for the regulators and um, was going to push back against this for a good long time, and then eventually, you know, throw up their hands. Okay, you got us. We'll stop doing that if Walmart does. Amazon, as you mentioned, has spent more money on R and D than Apple and Microsoft put together. That will surprise people. But they've spent that money on their own platform, on improving it, on logistics. They're all for the benefit of Amazon. And ultimately, yes, the customer benefits from that with lower prices, but the products on Amazon are not increasing in their innovation. For example, you take a white label product like batteries. Batteries have lost out because Amazon undercut many of the suppliers offering a white label battery solution. As a result, if you take somebody like Duracell, Duracell is no longer innovating within their own product set in energy because how can they keep up with Amazon undercutting them the whole time? It discourages innovation. And we see this. This is one of the issues with white labeling. I mean, it's fair to notice that Amazon has had some significant innovations of its own, like um, uh, I would point to Kindle, which transformed the book business and Alexa, which is only just getting started, but which I think will be very important. Um, I can only explain recent voice. Rec- <laughs> Alexa, <laughs> brilliant! Shut up, Alexa. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> They're everywhere. They're listening. Yes, they They're- are listening. They are listening. And and you know, seven. I think seventy-five million American households have decided they don't care. Uh, I don't know if I'm I'm saying I'm not interested at home that I care if Alexa's listening to me, man. That's I think that's right. I think 
if if you're interested, I think this act, actually Alexa is the most important thing currently going on at Amazon because it's going to be the gateway between you and the outside world. Let's talk about that, Robin, because we talk about disruption on the show. And in fact, Google is facing a mass disruption because of Amazon because of voice searches. By late 2019, 44% of product searches were started on Amazon compared to 22% on Google. So the perception that Amazon has good prices is clearly widespread. This is what I was talking about earlier on that you don't even bother going to the hassle, the effort of going into the Google sphere in order to search for the best price because you're pretty sure that Amazon has the best price available. As a result, you stay on Amazon in order to start your search and finish it. And then you add in voice search, which Amazon is far ahead of any of its competitors because of the assets that were in the ashes of the Fire Phone, because Alexa was in the Fire Phone, they lifted it out of there, put it into the Echo, which was the smart speaker, and it propelled them ahead of their competitors, including Google. And this is why the share of voice, excuse the pun, for voice search is so important to these platforms. You know, the other thing is that right now there really isn't, um, they, they haven't found and nobody has found a, a sort of complete model for how to monetize this, how to turn it into a business. Currently, it's not a business. It's an experiment. But you can see what is kind of see what's coming. So you you know yeah, voice search is one thing, but uh, we're already seeing that Amazon is is using Alexa as the linch, linchpin of your local security environment, right? With Ring and the cameras and drones inside the house, which seems like the most ridiculous thing I've heard for a long time. But and uh, and Amazon's robot servant, which is just getting started, uh, all of these things are going to be controlled through Alexa. But I think the place where Alexa will be most important is in becoming your um, assistant for healthcare. You know, we Right now, what we have is a pretty sharply bifurcated system where there is formal health care for which you go to a primary care doctor or some other gateway, and they let you into the system, right? And you have to do that in order to get pretty much any care. And then below that, there's kind of a lot of wellness care. You know, there's a bunch of people selling you supplements and, and videos and yoga and you know, weightlifting courses and whatnot. Um, and then there's some people starting to use phones to track activity. And of course, Amazon is right up there with that. But I think there is a huge opportunity because that bifurcation right now is not efficient. There's a lot of healthcare, subcritical healthcare that goes into the primary care system that doesn't need to. Right. And, you know, systems try and deal with this through having advice nurses and they make you fill out, you know, questionnaires and forms. And it's hard to get to the doctor in the first place. And I think Amazon is going to position itself right there at that boundary and it is going to eat healthcare from below. And that, so they're building primary care clinics for their workers now. 
So if you're a worker, you get to go to an Amazon primary care clinic. It's often in the warehouse, but not always. Once they figure out how to do that properly and to connect it to the house through Alexa, it's going to be transformative. We're going to see, we're going to see an, an, an Amazon branded primary care, possibly not even Amazon branded. It will, maybe they'll sell services to Walmart like they do with AWS, right? They could easily white label this for somebody else. And you will have IBM Care or Ford Care, but it'll be run by Amazon. It'll be, you know, and they have the scale, and they have this this key thing, which is the which is Alexa. And I think actually, by by accessing individual data, they will be able to do things that in that our current system which relies on randomized control, huge randomized control trials, which are very binary. They either work or they don't, right? And, um, Amazon can do different things because what works for you doesn't work for me. The randomized control trial is designed to create an average outcome for the average patient. But none of us are average. Right, you have very specific things that Amazon eventually will learn what will work for you and what won't in a way that a randomized control trial can never do. And Alexa is a key step to that. I'd like to talk about the future in a second, but I wanted to lean into innovation because it's such an important aspect from the Amazon culture. It's not so much the ideas, it's the culture itself. And I'm gonna pull a quote here about in innovation at Amazon. Bezos said, invention is in our DNA and technology is the fundamental tool we wield to evolve and prove every aspect of the experience we provide our customers. Of all the in innovations you list, I think this line is the most important. Amazon is extraordinarily agile for a big company. It can roll out major initiatives in a few months or even a few weeks. Amazon Prime now two-hour grocery delivery took only 111 days from inception to pilot rollout and was operating in 30 cities globally within 15 months of its initial launch. Amazon Prime itself was conceived in October 2004 and launched in February 2005. The reason I wanted to share that is the idea is not enough. Many organizations have so many fantastic ideas, but they can't socialize that idea, they can't get buy in for those ideas. And in organizations, there's so many stop points where we get stuck, and we can't get the idea from inception to implementation. But in Amazon, you tell us, Amazon have multiple go points. Let's lean into this a bit, because it's so important for those organizations who have ideas about becoming more innovative and having a culture of innovation. So Innovation at Amazon, <laughs> so it's like a puzzle, isn't it? I mean, here you have this huge corporation, and we know that huge corporate as as corporations get bigger, their innovation capacity slows down. You know, they start to focus on big projects, yes, but the sort of in general, the more innovative, the, the, the bigger the company, the more it has to defend its existing turf, and the less easy it is for it to sign on to and roll out, fully roll out innovative ideas because they're treading on something. 
you know, it's easy when you're a startup, you have no brand, you have no, you have no customers and you have no stakeholders. You just roll out what you can and whatever, whatever works, that becomes your business. Well, fine. That's great. But when you get to be a billion dollar corporation or a $10 billion corporation, it's so much more difficult. I mean, look at those huge companies that had incredible businesses and just totally failed to innovate into the future. Kodak and Nokia are the, you know, the poster boys for this, but IBM was in some, to, to some degree, others have been too. It's possible that the auto industry got caught short by Tesla because they had an existing enormous business that they couldn't just simply say, well, you know, we'll throw away the gasoline engine and we'll just start making electric cars. No, it's not possible. So, okay, so fine. But Amazon seems to be different. Amazon is not like that. Amazon keeps innovating. It keeps rolling out important new things constantly. <laughs> and so, so this is a puzzle, right? So how do they do that? And I do not claim to have complete, you know, like a complete um, explanation. I think it's a work in progress and um, we'll learn more as more stuff comes out. But I, I put it down to basically four factors. So I start with the culture. Amazon has a very deliberate culture. It's not an accidental culture. Its mission statement really matters. It had, you know, its mission is fundamentally, as Bezos has said many, many, many times, to be the most customer-centric company on earth. That's an interesting uh, mission because it says nothing about where they're going to work, what sectors, what kind of products, nothing. It's just about satisfying customers. And there, I firmly believe this, and, and I've talked to enough Amazon people that I think it's right their culture is not like standard American corporate culture. Every, every American business has a mission statement. You know, they've had the corporate HR folk work one up and they write it up and they plaster it on things. And it is almost entirely meaningless. I mean, this, this is just PR nonsense, right? But it's not nonsense at Amazon. They have a set of 14 principles and they wrote them out after they, after they got started, you know, in the early 2000s and they changed them every now and then. But fundamentally, there is one principle that guides them all. That's being customer centric and everything else is in service to that. So being frugal. Okay. Well, then you can be better, better serve your customers or, you know, um, being innovative and looking for new solutions. There are many, they're all important. They all matter. But what really matters is to think about what kind of a company is it that is governed by a mission statement, fully governed by a mission statement where arguments are settled inside the company by reference to these principles. And when you interview at Amazon, you're expected to know those principles well enough that you can you can address the use cases they throw at you with references to those principles. So yeah, well, we could be more frugal here and this is how we would do it. You know, you have to be able to fully buy in. And so what kind of a culture is this? This is a culture like the Jesuits 
or like the Marines. It's a certain kind of secular cult that has tremendous power. It, it means that, at, you know, the, the, the syllogism is pretty simple. Uh, you know, serving the customer is the highest good. Amazon, by definition, is serving the customer. Therefore, everything that Amazon does is by definition the highest good. And so we don't really have to take any note of what anyone else says. We know better. And a lot of the time they know better because they have information and tools that help them to know better, right? But but there is a certain identity and part of that identity is to be innovative. So there is a cultural push that is much stronger than at most other places. You know, other places, yeah, you have to make your numbers first and then you can think about whatever. But Amazon goes out of its way in many ways to make its culture a place where people can think out outside the box somewhat. So that, that's, that's one thing. Second is structure, and that's the role of teams at Amazon. Well, every organization nowadays has teams. I mean, it's not an unusual thing, but the team structure at Amazon is unusual. It's, it, you, you can almost imagine Amazon as a free-flowing Darwinian universe of, of entities that form and coalesce and break up as necessary, and where the organization, you know, there are requirements to produce, right, to keep things running or to build something new or, you know, but how that fits into the organization is very fluid. If you have a good idea to do something new, anybody you can look around for some resources, some initial resources from your boss or someone else, find those resources to explore more, start to build a, a project and accrete more, um, more resources and, until it becomes a reality. Uh, one of the critical things is you can go outside your chain of command very easily. You can find sponsors anywhere. Uh, you know, Amazon is sometimes called the company with 100 CEOs. And so there are a lot of people who can green light what you're doing. You know, in a, in a traditional hierarchical organization, there are only people who can stop you, right? Everybody above you in the hierarchy until you get to the decision point can stop what you're doing. And there's nobody else to facilitate it. So, so you're sort of organizationally biased against action. Amazon is biased towards action. And that's one of their principles, a bias for action. So in so the, the structure of building around teams uh, is different. I would say one other thing, and this is another, uh, look, I'm not a great man theory of history kind of guy. I typically think that great men are overrated and that they they didn't they 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 stood on the shoulders of a lot of other people who didn't actually get any credit. But uh Bezos is pretty special. Um so now Amazon has thousands of teams, right? Well, thousands of teams are an impossible mess to move information across. How do you do that? 
How, I mean, even just sending emails to people, people would drown. There's so much stuff. So uh, 20 years ago, Bezos published a memo that said all the assets of every team, all the digital assets of every team have to be available through API. You don't have to go to, to ask them for permission. No, it's published. And it's in principle published so that outside vendors can see it too. So suddenly, uh, and, and this caused a lot of consternation. I mean, everybody's used to keeping their, you know, their little bit of information territory secret and letting people in and trading it and whatever. No, blow it up, make it open, create a, an entire platform of information. Uh, that's a very prescient thing to do 25, 20 odd years ago. Uh, so I give him full props for that. I don't think the team structure that Amazon has now would be possible without that. So, yeah. so anyway, so that's the second. Then there's yeah. the third is the process. I love the process. Honestly, I absolutely love the process. So if you have an idea, you write it up into a six-page document. Six-page document is not a PowerPoint. Amazon doesn't accept PowerPoints. They believe that too many problems hide between the bullets. And I think that's exactly right. Um, so you have a six-page document, and eventually, after kicking it around for a while, it looks strong enough to attract a meeting. So a meeting of your bosses or other stakeholders, whatever. Um, how does this meeting go? It's wonderful. Meeting starts with a 30-minute, approximately, reading period. Why? Because nobody reads their documents. We all know this. I mean, I've been to, I don't know how many meetings Nobody reads the document before the meeting. They're all spending the first half hour trying to understand it and then think and keeping an eye on whatever's going on. So no, they just sit and read. What a great idea. And then, and then there is a very detailed, ruthless cut down into the thing. Okay, what do you really need to do here? And this is a highly iterative process. You're going to go through the process of building this and building a parallel document which is the press release, right? So the press release is the first thing you do as an Amazon, if you're, if you're uh, introducing something new at Amazon. You have to explain how exactly the, what you're doing is going to improve the life of, lives of their customers. It's a remarkable starting place, right? And it, it forces a focus on that prime directive. You have to be thinking about the customers all the time. And here it is in concrete form in this press release that it, you know, starts. So, um, so this process, and there's a lot more in the book about process, and we can go into more detail. But so you have culture, you have process, you have structure, and then you have resources. And Amazon is pretty free with their resources. They are frugal, but as, as you mentioned earlier, they spend a lot of money on R&D. And it's it's available, you know. I, resources are available to do new things on a pretty persistent basis. It's becoming harder, uh, you know. Now, if you want to do something new, and you, you senior management is looking for things that make a ten billion dollar difference, that's a pretty steep hurdle. <laughs> pretty steep, um, but. Um, nonetheless, you know, the innovations keep coming. So, and I mean, it's relentless. You can't keep track of them. You know, there's an announcement from Amazon or AWS 
or you know one of its um, one of its foreign subsidiaries or whatever. There's announcements every day. They're constantly moving. Regular listeners to the show will be familiar, Robin, with the idea of the S curve. But you talk about Amazon in the 2030s and the double S curve of growth. I'd love you to share this. This is a fantastic concept. Your listeners are, are familiar with the S curve, the idea that new technologies are adopted by early adopters first. Then there's a period of gradually accelerating adoption across, um, uh, across the economy or across the niche or whatever it is. And then, you know, you get the late adopters, the people who are still using rotary dial phones today. Um, so, so, okay, so that's a standard S curve for technology. But Amazon is riding a, a double S curve, I think, still. Um, the first and most important one is the S curve of e-commerce adoption. So before the pandemic hit, e-commerce accounted for 11% of um, retail in the U.S., and uh, now it's 15 and it's moving, moving up quite quickly. Typically, the S-curve moves into its mass adoption phase right around 10%. So we're right at the bottom of the mass adoption phase. And if you look at the UK or you look at um, China, you can see that there is a lot more to come. And so you, you have to ask yourself, okay, here we are in 2021. 10 years from now, it's now at 15%. What do we think the share of retail will be that is online? And, you know, it doesn't, it seems to me for sure that it'll be 25% and it may very well be 30%. So the overall share will at least double and probably triple. And during that period, retail as a whole will grow as well. So there's enormous growth in e-commerce coming right now. The second, the second S curve is the adoption of Amazon, right? And, and that's a, that, that one, Amazon is now riding to the very top. So Amazon started as a small bookstore, it invented Prime, it got more customers, it got more customers. And now about 45%, I think, as of the last um, Department of Commerce data, 45% uh, of e-commerce transactions in the U.S. by value are going through Amazon. So my question to you is, will that figure be higher or lower in, 19, in, in 2031? And there are reasons to say that it's going to be lower because I think Amazon is going to de-emphasize its own retail business um, because it's, not very, it's, it's a money loser. Um, and the comp competition is growing. I mean, people are figuring out this is a huge market. We have to get into it somehow. So you have things like Shopify, you have Walmart trying to build a marketplace, you have Target building a marketplace. But Amazon is, you know, Amazon is the behemoth. Amazon is dominant. And do I think that Amazon's share of e-commerce will be lower or higher in 2031? I think it'll probably be higher. You know, it reminds me of... Elon Musk and Tesla and, and the idea that he outsource, he open sources some of the information on Tesla and his other inventions. One of the reasons there is that a rising tide lift all, lifts all boats. So everybody benefits from that. And Amazon are doing work that will make the pie bigger. And Amazon will create a bigger pie and as a result have a bigger slice of that pie. Amazon will probably have a slightly higher share of that pie. So 
So if if our prediction is correct, let, let us say that it goes to 25% e-commerce, in, in, which I think is very conservative, uh, and that Amazon just maintains its current share. That means that Amazon's retail business will, will grow in line. It will, instead of being, um, you know, 400 billion, it'll be a trillion. The other thing to always bear in mind is because Amazon perfects products for itself and then sells them even to its competitors, when the pie is bigger, it will be able to have more customers for those services that it's created. I wanted to finish on an important point probably should have got here earlier. Robin, we talked about the origin story of Amazon, we didn't go deep into that which you do in the book. But the origin story, I love that when it happens in these superhero movies, when you actually get to understand where did the hero come from, what challenges do they have, what background do they have, what family do they have. But it, something else that often comes up, particularly in the comics of Stan Lee, where the idea of with great power comes great responsibility. And this is something I often think about with these mega platforms, they have massive power. And as a result, they have massive responsibility because they can dictate the behaviors of the job marketplace and of everybody working there. And it'd be remiss of us not to mention how Amazon has been often criticized about its treatment of its own workers. Yes, it puts the customer first, but often at what expense? Is it at the expense of its own employees? Perhaps you'd share some thoughts on this. I, I sometimes say that I want the Amazon I want, not the one I got. Uh, I think Amazon is sort of relentlessly focused on the customer. And bluntly, it has always thought that uh, workers were disposable. Now, in last year, at the height of the pandemic, they hired 400,000 people. What? Do you imagine? I mean, how do you do that? How do you hire one person? Right? It's hard enough to hire one person. So you have 400,000 people. There's only one way to do that. And that is by dumbing down the work to the point that it can be done by anybody with 10 minutes training. Right? And that's what Amazon has done. I, I, I cannot tell you how much I think your um, listeners should go visit an Amazon warehouse. They do tours. They are incredible places and they show exactly the light and dark side of Amazon. They show all this incredible efficiency of machinery and automation and packages whizzing by. And they also show humans standing there for 10 hours a day doing the same motion, just like they would in Charlie Chaplin's factory, you know, and it's only a temporary thing at Amazon because they're going to automate the warehouses. There's no doubt about that. They're planning to, they're working on it, they're doing it. And, and then, you know, it's even worse, right? I mean, it right now, Amazon's warehouses offer you $18 an hour starting pay, full health care, retirement benefits. They even throw in free college if you have enough energy at the end of your 10-hour day to do college work, which I think is an entirely PR enterprise. I think this is, you know, there are probably three people in the whole building, whole whole company that have actually completed a college course. Um, so, 
So there are these incredible benefits. They are real. They offer good pay. They offer good healthcare benefits. And in exchange, they work you to death. And you, you know, the data that I saw suggested that Amazon was from a lawsuit because Amazon is extremely secretive about what it does. Lawsuit suggested they fire a third of their workers in 13 months for non-performance. And you can imagine how many leave. And, you know, this is enormous churn. So what do, you, what, what do we need from them? And, and, and I guess I'd make one other point here. Look, when Amazon was a small business, nobody cared what they did. Next year, Amazon will be the biggest employer in the U.S., and it's no longer okay to say, well, just trust us, right? We, we absolutely need radical ex- transparency. You know, they may be the best employer in the world, but until they tell us what their turnover numbers are and what their true injury numbers are in the warehouses and how many of their white-collar workers leave after two years... Until they tell us that, it's all PR. Is that, and, and we need that information in order to ensure that Amazon is doing the right thing because there's no reason to trust them. I mean, look, look at the delivery guy I started with, right? Um, you know, they used to have a delivery system. They used, to, uh, they used to have drivers and they would have employees as drivers. That was stage one. Stage two, they built something called Flex. Flex is Uber for Amazon. You could take your car and you could deliver like you can for Whole Foods and stuff right now. But that wasn't enough. So that was already going to a gig economy model. But then they decided that it was better to have somebody else manage the gig economy for them. So they helped hundreds of people set up what are called delivery service partners, which are small organizations that basically have Amazon as their only customer and they deliver. They deliver goods for Amazon, right? So it's like setting up a micro-sized UPS with one customer, just Amazon. But that allows Amazon to step back from all responsibility for those deliveries, for those delivery drivers. We got these terrible, you know, stories about them not having enough time to even go to the bathroom, about accidents, <clears throat> and um and Amazon just squeezes. It, it takes no responsibility and it squeezes. And that, that is, unfortunately, their model on the production side. And I think unless we radically change how we think about companies, there's, there's no way through here. I, I personally think that the utility model, where utilities are allowed to exist as monopolies, but only because they reveal everything. They tell us how much they're spending on this and that, and there's a commission that settles how much they can charge. Well, I don't want that for Amazon, but I want the transparency. If we don't know what's going on on their platform with those sellers, with with Amazon chasing people out of the business, then we can't regulate it. We can't tell them what is acceptable and what is not. Amazon is designed to exploit every crevice, every leverage, every advantage in the business world. And that's normal in a capitalist system. They're just really, really good at it. And it's our job as a society to put the guardrails in place 
we did that for child labor. We did that for the 40-hour week. We did that, you know, for healthcare. We've done this before, but we need to do it now. What a beautiful way to finish today's show, Robin. And I could go on for hours. Literally, there is hours worth of content in this book. And perhaps we'll do a part two in the future. Perhaps you'll do a 10 year anniversary, and we won't know where it will play out by then. But certainly you have recognized many of the threats and the opportunities with this company. And the fact that we need to have agency about the decisions being made. But I thought I'd finish with a quote, a very positive quote that you mentioned in the book. And I thought this would be a nice way for me to finish before we wrap up today's show it goes as follows. In the structure of scientific revolutions, Thomas Kuhn distinguished between incremental change and what he called paradigm shifts in the sciences, through which scientists suddenly accept a major new conceptual construct through which to view reality. Einstein's universe replaced Newtonian mechanics, just like Copernican astronomy, replaced Ptolemy's Earth centered solar system. Today, Amazon is responsible for five paradigm shifts, the online bookstore, AWS, the marketplace, the Kindle and prime. Alexa may well turn out to be the next. In each case, a series of innovations led to a new understanding of what is possible. Amazon's vast financial, technical and market resources are levers to be used rather than fiefs to defend. The result is a company that can surf on a tsunami of innovation in multiple fields, and all simultaneously. It is indeed a machine for innovation, and Amazon built it all. Author of Bohemoth, Amazon Rising, Power and Seduction in the Age of Amazon, Robin Gaster, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for a wonderful conversation. It was just great. Aiden. Thank you. Thanks as always to our friends over at Zai, sponsor for the innovation show. Zai is a global fintech innovating within its own area of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. You can check them out at hellozai.com.